Failure is not always permanent. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. Before becoming president, Abraham Lincoln was a shopkeeper. He was terrible at it. He racked up huge debts that took him decades to repay. You might know the name Walt Disney, famous creator, animator, uh, creator of Mickey Mouse. Um, He was sacked from his first creative role, quote, because he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. Presumably at the time that was true. You might have heard of Jerry Seinfeld. It's hard to imagine this. His first stand-up comedy show was a disaster. He was paralysed with stage fright, couldn't continue, was booed off stage. Isaac Newton, probably the most famous, influential scientist there's ever been, apparently he performed so badly at school, his parents took him out and he then became the operator of the family farm. It was a complete train wreck. They sent him back to school where he would go on to Cambridge University and then to one of the most influential scientific careers the world has known. Each of these people failed, but I don't think any of us would describe them as failures. Now, in Exodus chapter 1, God is busy keeping his promises including the promise to Abraham that he would have descendants numbering more than stars in the sky. And these promises that God is keeping, in the process, he manages to humiliate Pharaoh because the more Pharaoh persecutes God's people, the more they multiply. Having raised up a people for himself, in chapter 2, God now raises up his chosen leader. Moses, a man who will fail badly before being transformed from a violent, impetuous, impulsive man into the servant-hearted shepherd that Israel so badly needs. A famous preacher put it this way, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was a somebody, 40 years learning he was a nobody, and then another 40 years learning what God can do with a nobody. In Exodus chapter 2, we have a favoured son, a failed saviour, and a faithful God who keeps his promises. Look with me from verse 1. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Apparently Moses is a fine child. No doubt his parents thought so. They always do. Then again, we should remind ourselves, Moses wrote the book of Exodus. So, you know, there's that. Some shameless self-promotion. More importantly, by way of reminder, why was the child hidden? Well, because of what we learned in chapter 1. If your Bible's open, look back to chapter 1, verse 22. Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Now, I was thinking about that this week. I haven't done the research, but anecdotally, I think this is probably true. When you think of the megalomaniacs of the world, of which Pharaoh is one, do you notice how they always get their people to do the dirty work? Look what Pharaoh does. He gives the order to all his people... Every Hebrew boy that's born, you must throw into the Nile. Which means, from the start, God's chosen leader is under threat, along with all the Israelites who are being worked ruthlessly to death. 
I'm speculating, but I think we can say with some safety, there would have been many Israelites who, based on their experience, would have felt abandoned by God because, well, where is he? What's he doing? Verses 1 to 10 in chapter 2 cover a period of 40 years and God is not mentioned once. Verses 11 to 22 cover another 40 years and again God is not mentioned. But it would be an error to presume that God is not active or as if he's forgotten his people because here, quietly, unseen, God is preserving the life of his chosen servant, verse 3, but when she, Moses' mother, could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Just pause for a second and imagine what was going through her mind as she did that. Now, for the Egyptians, the Nile River, it was one of their many idols. They worshipped the river god as the giver of life. But for the Israelites, and particularly their boys, the Nile has become Pharaoh's instrument of death. It's worth knowing then that the word translated basket here, it's the same word used once only elsewhere to describe Noah's ark. And so like Noah, Moses will be saved by an ark, in this case a rickety little basket. But we cannot afford to get sentimental. Oh, that's lovely, it's another ark story. This was an incredible act of faith by Moses' parents. In the one action, obeying Pharaoh's edict and at the same time entrusting their boy to the God who keeps his promises. Yes, the Israelites are multiplying according to God's promise, but that's no guarantee Moses will survive. And besides, we have to be realistic. From this mother's perspective, the chances of her son surviving are less than slim. Our circumstances are different, but the same principle applies. In his wisdom, God does not disclose to us how our future will play out. He calls us to trust him and particularly to trust that he really does have good plans and purposes for his people, even when we can't see them. Because to the average onlooker, seeing Moses put into the river, Pharaoh was in charge, wasn't he? But unseen, supernaturally, God is ordering events in a way nobody could predict. Let's consider some of the ways that God upends all our expectations. The river was meant to take Moses' life, but safe in a basket he survives. Pharaoh orders all Israelite baby boys dead, but Pharaoh's own daughter will save Moses. An Israelite mother will lose her baby but she'll be reunited and to rub it in, Pharaoh's house will pay child support because like a fool, the devil always pays twice and the Israelites are meant to be slaves. But here, one of their own, a Hebrew, becomes a favoured son of Egypt, untouchable 
at the centre of Pharaoh's regime, making this just the latest example of how God can effortlessly transform the evil intent of wicked people to achieve his good purposes. And I simply make this point by way of practical observation as the cultural tide turns against God's wisdom more and more. We might worry as institutions and government agencies, large companies and the media, it seems like they have all the power. Worse, it can seem as if God has gone silent. I'm not saying we face anything like the hardship of the Israelites. That would be absurd. Here we meet unhindered today. Nevertheless, as the loud cultural elites take their stand against God's people, the Exodus experience becomes such an important touchstone because it reveals to us what is true, if unseen, that the God of the Bible is keeping his promises often quietly, he's raised up a people despite Pharaoh's best efforts and now he's raising up Moses for the task ahead. But let's not get excited because being generous, Moses gets off to something of a false start. He's a failed saviour, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Moses enjoys all the privileges that Egypt's culture has to offer, including a top-tier Egyptian education. He mightn't have looked like an Egyptian, but he sounded like an Egyptian. He thought like an Egyptian. And I've had that terrible bangle song in my head all week. He probably walked like an Egyptian. If that's a cultural reference that passes you by, praise God in heaven. The mid-1980s was a dark time for the music industry. And yet while Moses was raised as an Egyptian for a long time, remember, it was his mother who nursed him. And we see the fruit of her faithfulness in verse 11. One day, 40 years, that is, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Now, if you've got your Bible open, look carefully at verse 11 because there's a repeated phrase there that is very important. His own people. He went out to his own people. It's a huge moment. For all his faults, and there are many, and we'll get to some of them, Moses turns his back on 40 years of Egyptian comfort, status, wealth, security, and power. And for what? We heard it in our second reading. Long before the Christ of the New Testament is revealed, he, Moses, regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ, as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Moses had no idea about the Christ revealed in the New Testament. How could he? But he did know that a Messiah would come. And so in his own way, even before it's given, Moses follows the pattern Jesus would later set down for anyone who'll call themselves a disciple Whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus says, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. That's what Moses did. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life, and that's what Moses is doing, for me, Jesus says, will find it. For Moses, this meant leaving the palace. He went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. They might have preferred, instead of watching, that he pitched in and helped, but let's give credit where it's due. Angered by the mistreatment of his people, Moses now takes his place among the Hebrews. It's a huge moment. But motivation without godly maturity is a disastrous combination. Motivation without godly maturity is a disastrous combination. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Verse 12, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. This is a very Egyptian solution to the suffering of God's people. He knew it was wrong. But to Moses, murder was justifiable and besides, one less Egyptian has got to be a good thing, doesn't it? I reckon on balance, it's probably unlikely that this week you'll be confronted by an Egyptian slave master. Can't say that with confidence, but I think that's probably true. But this incident raises serious practical questions for God's people living in the 21st century. How so? Well, because like Moses, it's very possible for our attitudes and behaviours to be shaped more by worldly values than we realise. That's the problem here for Moses. He acts like an Egyptian. In humility, we need to be praying that the spirit of Jesus will so transform our minds. Romans 12 puts it this way, don't conform to the pattern of this world. That was Moses' mistake. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God doesn't need people to take matters into their own hands. What he wants are humble servants who'll take his direction. Moses doesn't know it yet, but in verses 11 to 22, he begins a 40-year transformation process where in the obscurity of Midian, God will prepare Moses to be the shepherd Israel so badly needs. And I put this question to you, I wonder how God is preparing you for your next stage of service. That is, unless, like Moses, you may have presumed God has finished with you. Moses' first attempt at leadership was a disaster. Thankfully, our God is the God of second chances and his failure won't be the end of his story. Which brings us to the final instalment of chapter 2. This is the turning point which is going to drive much of the events we're going to see in the rest of the book. God remembers, verse 23, during that long period. Let that sink in. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. 
And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God, verse 24. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So, verse 25, God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Look at the beginning of verse 24, God hears. Beginning of verse 25, God looks. This reminds me of that moment where, with compassion, Jesus looks out over the city of Jerusalem, do you remember? Describing the people as like sheep without a shepherd. Unlike Moses, who acts impulsively after some 400 years, the Lord's not in a hurry. He's about to act. But let's be clear about something. God is not about to save the Israelites because they were morally or ethically superior because they weren't. Besides, that's got nothing to do with it. God remembers, that is, he brings to mind, he hasn't forgotten, he brings to mind what comes next and he remembers what? His faithfulness, his promises. My point is, the Israelites don't deserve to be saved. Rather, as God keeps his promises, the people of Israel receive grace and mercy. As we look back with our New Testament perspective, we find several echoes that are going to be revealed in the Lord Jesus. Consider some of these. Both Moses and Jesus are born to obscure parents in a nowhere town. Both face death threats from the beginning. Both are raised during a time when God's people are oppressed. Both give up willingly their royal position. Both will be tested in the wilderness. Both perform miracles as a demonstration of God's power. And both are rejected by God's people. But it's not long before these comparisons between Moses and Jesus begin to break down. Moses leads God's people, but he's powerless to save them. Moses was a life taker. Jesus is the life giver. Moses was brash. He was headstrong. Jesus describes himself as humble and gentle. Moses sees God free a nation from slavery. Jesus himself will release humanity from slavery to sin. It's right to uphold Moses. It's right to celebrate Moses. He was, after all, leader of God's people. But then again, Moses was still, nevertheless, just a person. One who, like the rest, as we've seen, needs saving. And so thanks be to God that in Jesus we have the greater Moses, a saviour upon whom we can rely, a saviour who hears our cries for mercy, who shares our afflictions, who comes alongside his people with power and a saviour who at the right time, a saviour who will lift up all who trust in him. As great as he was, And he was one greater than Moses has come as the saviour of God's people. May we put our trust in him. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for 
the gift of your servant Moses. We do thank you for his eventual faithfulness. We thank you for your faithfulness to your promises made sure and guaranteed to us through the resurrection of your Son, our Saviour. Increase our trust, we pray. And Father, we look to you, the one who is unseen and yet who in the Lord Jesus is revealed, the one whose day is to come. And so as we wait for his revelation, we pray that you'd train us so to trust in him and would we give our lives to your service and so honour the Lord Jesus in all we do and say, Father, hear our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.